Well, good morning. If I have yet to meet you, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to, to dive into the Word with you. You'll notice that uh, I'm not feeling 100% myself, so don't greet me with a holy kiss today and, uh, or ever. Um, no, <laughs> joking, of course. We'll make it through this by God's grace. In the town uh, I grew up in, uh, there's an acquaintance of mine, a husband and wife who are remarkably unselfish and they are jo uh, joyfully devoted to the welfare of others. It is their pattern, uh, this generous couple that I'm speaking of, it's their pattern to take note of people's needs, to lay those needs before the Lord in prayer, and then when and how the Lord directs, it is their pattern to use their own personal resources to meet the needs of others. When it comes to stewarding, the time and talent and money that God has entrusted to them, they are exemplary. And during one particular instance, after prayerfully recognizing the needs of a young family, this generous husband and wife anonymously gave a very generous amount of money, hoping to lessen the young family's financial burdens. At the time, the husband and wife weren't super wealthy. They still aren't, but I'm specifically noting that at the time of their giving, they weren't super wealthy. And so their generous giving required them to go without something in order to give the gift. But they were at peace about the whole thing because the Lord was behind it. The Lord was in it. And by the grace of God, that peace from God remained in them even when the young, needy family did not put the money to wise use. They left all their bills piled up on the table and instead they went and they took a very lavish vacation. The husband and wife themselves hadn't been on vacation in a while. Certainly they had other things they could have put the money Toward, but they were at peace because ultimately their gift was by God and through God and, and to God. So money can be a bit of a tricky topic to talk about in the modern church, especially with all the charlatans who are on TV who stand behind their pulpits and they coerce their followers to sow financial seeds into their mission work, which really consists of fancy suits and private jets. And then, you know, because we don't want to even be associated with the prosperity gospel, pastors like me, we don't even want to talk about money. <laughs> like at all and in fact we hide our offering boxes in the back of our sanctuaries and it's like no no don't don't mention giving and yet money is a critical topic that must be addressed society insists that money makes the world go round okay conversely jesus insists that we can't serve money and god at the same time the two are not compatible. The Apostle Paul actually ends 
this joyful, Christ-exalting thank you letter by shining some light on what is the sometimes controversial topic of money. It's actually hard to believe that 16 weeks have come and gone. Today is our last day in the book of Philippians, at least in this season. And before I read, I'm gonna cough. And I'm also gonna do a quick review, quick, over what we've covered in the book of Philippians. In chapter one, Paul celebrated how the members and deacons and elders of the church in Philippi are both partners and partakers of God's grace with him. In chapter one, we were reminded that God will finish the salvific work that he begins in his people. And it's with this wonderful promise and assurance in view that Paul urged the Philippians and us at the end of chapter one to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. In chapter two, Paul then heralded the person and work of Jesus. Though Jesus is God the Son, he humbled himself to serve and to die in order to forgive and unify and empower his people to righteous living. In chapter two, what a savior we serve. What a savior we have. In chapter three, Paul warned the Philippians and us against placing any salvific confidence in our own religious works. Instead, he urged us to place all our confidence in the victorious life, death, and resurrection of Christ and we are to worship our gracious God by the Holy Spirit who indwells our hearts. That was chapter three. And now so far in chapter four, Paul has pleaded with two feuding women to agree in the Lord and to remain unified within their local church, not because they have agreement on every item, but because they have agreement on the item the good news of Christ, his death and resurrection. Also in chapter four, Paul exhorted the Philippians and us to joyfully abound in hope even when we face persecution and poverty and the temptation to divide as a local congregation, we are to remain joyful and steadfast in hope because the glorious of, uh, return of Christ is just on the horizon. It's almost here. And finally, last week in chapter four, verses 10 through 13, Paul celebrated how the Philippians have revived their concern for him by sending to him a financial care package. While Paul celebrated their concernment, he also shared that he had learned the secret that all Christians should be pursuing, the secret of absolute contentment in Christ. Whew. Was a summary. Am I cutting in and out, man? Yeah? That was a summary of the book of Philippians, and what an amazing book, letter it is. Now I'd invite you to follow along as I read. We're going to conclude this wonderful book in verses 14 through 23 of chapter 4. 
Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever, amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the book of Philippians. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you might have blessed our hearing of that word, of your word, and that now you might teach us by your spirit, reprove us by your spirit, correct us and train us in the righteousness of Christ that is ours in Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. We're not going to spend much time on Paul's closing greetings in verses 21 through 23, but one thing we might quickly observe in those verses is this. During seasons of persecution and poverty and peril, the unifying bond between Christians grows thicker than concrete. Paul's like, greet every saint who is among you, he tells the Philippians. And the Christians who are here with me in Rome greet you, especially those who are in and around Caesar's property as, well, that's where I'm under house arrest. With the thrust of today's passage occurring in verses 14 through 20, that's where we'll focus the remainder of our time, examining three aspects of generous giving that are highlighted in these verses by Paul. If you're a note taker, here's what we'll look at for the remainder of our time. Number one, what giving is. Number two, what giving requires. And number three, what giving gains. Let's look at number one. Let's look at what giving is. I'll mention back in verse 11, Paul insisted that he's not in need, all right? Because he's learned the secret of contentment in Christ. And yet, Paul writes, verse 14 of today's passage, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. I don't, I don't need anything. I have everything I need in Christ, but it was kind of you. 
Your financial gift to me was kind. In 15, Paul acknowledges that the Philippians had financially supported him on several occasions since the very beginning of his gospel preaching ministry when he left Philippi in Macedonia and he went to preach in Thessalonica. In 18, he, he writes, I have received your full payment and more. And it's okay that we sneer, we, we, we snicker a little bit. It's, uh, many scholars think that Paul is actually being a, a bit humorous here. I got my paycheck, Philippians, and a raise. Woo! You know what I mean? Like, I've received full payment. Like, for, for what? You know, he's not a merchant. Scholars think that he's being a little bit humorous. But he adds, I am well supplied, Philippians. I am supplied to pay for my, my house arrest. And probably some other ministry experiences is what is on Paul's mind. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now notice the language Paul uses as he describes their financial gift as a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Verses 14, 15, and 18 help us to understand giving as a sacrifice. Financial generosity is a sacrifice. That generous husband and wife I told you about at the beginning, they had to go without something in order to supply the need to that needy family. The needy family was troubled, similar to the way Paul is here. And the generous couple essentially shared in the trouble. They gave an offering, they went without something, in order to supply the need kind of in the way that the Philippians are doing for Paul here. Uh, my sister is a ballerina. She was a ballerina growing up and a group of ballerinas that she was uh, dancing with once complained. I'll never forget this story, Cass. A group of ballerinas once complained about how much they had to sacrifice in order to dance. But their instructor wisely corrected their erred thinking saying, no, 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 girls. You have made a choice to dance instead of pursuing a different self-interested activity. A sacrifice is when you give something up for the good of someone else. There's a difference. Wise and true words. And then Paul would add to that at the end of verse 18, Giving to someone else is, is really a sacrifice unto the Lord himself. It is a pleasing and acceptable, fragrant aroma, much like the burnt offerings of ancient Israel. This is profound. Hear me out. When we sacrificially give our money to our neighbor, to our church, to our missionary partners, God regards it as if we are laying directly on his altar a sacrifice. It's pleasing to him. It is worshipful toward him. 
This is why that husband and wife were at peace even when that needy family unwisely spent the gift that they had received. The, need, or the, the, the generous couple was at peace because their gift was ultimately to the Lord. Now I'll ask you the same questions I'm asking myself via this passage. Are you a sacrificial giver? Are you financially generous to the point that you go without something in order to give it? Or if you're honest with yourself, and if I'm honest with myself, is our giving really kind of barely felt? One author writes, it's not really generosity if it's not really costing you anything. This same principle is displayed in 2 Samuel 24 when King David refuses to make a burnt offering from someone else's animals. He says, I will not sacrifice that which costs me nothing. I will not go through the motions and pretend that I am a generous giver if my giving really doesn't cost me. So I'll ask again, and I'll ask myself, is your giving costly? Is it sacrificial? And I've heard all of the excuses because I've made all of the excuses. Well, my, my, my giving would be sacrificial, but I w I've been burned by churches before. I would be more sacrificial in my giving, but I'm not making the kind of money that I think I need to make first. What comes first? I'm not, you know, giving sacrificially because, well, I haven't, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a tax-deductible entity to give it to. Okay? These are American ways of giving, right? Yeah, but, 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 they're, but they're not tax-exempt. There was no tax exemption in ancient Israel. Look, these responses are funny because they're true, even in my own heart. These responses, though, they make for a fitting transition to point two, and point two will be a bit shorter. What giving requires? In verse 14, Paul acknowledges the Philippians for kindly sharing in his troubles, but then in verse 17, he insists that he isn't seeking their financial help. Look, he's in a bad situation. We've tapped that out over the last 16 weeks. Y'all, for the most part, know. He's under house arrest. He's paying for house arrest. The emperor Nero, who hates Christians, is about to decide his case. It's not good. He's in a bad situation. And yet, look what we don't see Paul ever doing. And we don't really hear of the Philippians doing it either. He's not sulking around saying, woe is me, God. Your people are supposed to be cheerful givers, but I just wish that more of them would be cheerfully, you know, giving to me because I'm such in need. 
We don't see that taking place. And as ridiculous as that might sound, I think that sort of entitled sulking is alive and well amongst many professing Christians today. I'll tell you a funny story to illustrate this, and it's about me. That's why it's funny. You just wait. Years ago, as I pulled up at the drive-through window of a coffee shop, the cashier told me that my drink had been paid for by the car in front of me. And I drove off, patting my back that someone had taken notice of me. Oh, they, they must know all that you know, I'm going through. <laughs> It was a wise decision on their part to pay for my coffee. Well, later I found out from my wife, who was a barista at that coffee shop, that there had been a really long line of generous coffee drinkers, one by one, joyfully paying for the person behind them until her husband pulled up. <laughs> and I was like, woohoo! Somebody was wise enough to see my need. You know, what? I'm an idiot. <laughs> Unlike Paul in verse 17, I was seeking the gift. Unlike the Philippians, I am all too often wrapped up in selfish concern. Knowing that we're all sinners, I'm gonna guess that that's you too. Let me ask you, as God's word speaks today about financial generosity, are you humbly and prayerfully reflecting on your own giving habits, or are you doing what I think many of us do uh, from time to time? We listen in hoping that someone else is listening in. I hope that brother or sister over there is listening in because they're not very generous. You know how we listen to the word of God for someone else rather than ourselves? Whatever your financial lot, whether you have a lot or a little, do you believe that your Savior's promise is more precious than gold? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? This is what sacrificial giving requires us to understand, that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. That generous husband and wife at the beginning of our time together, they understood this. I don't seek the gift, Paul writes in verse 17, but I do seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Point number three, what giving gains? In God's economy, giving does mean gaining. You heard that. When Paul speaks of the fruit that increases to your credit, he is giving us a paradoxical image of a bank account that grows in interest the more it is emptied. What? But be warned, 
Last week, we came across a verse that, oh, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We gotta, we gotta understand the context. We must understand the context of verse 17 or else we might believe that material wealth is promised to sacrificial givers. Uh-uh, that's not the case. Many sacrificial givers have suffered great poverty. Jesus? Paul? What about the missionary uh, Amy Carmichael and William Carey? Material wealth is not promised to sacrificial givers. Something better is. Something better. What's promised to sacrificial givers? Fruit. Not a basket of fruit. <laughs> Evidence. Proof. Assurance. That we truly belong to God. It is the Philippians' sacrificial giving that partially led to Paul's celebration back in chapter one, verse six, when he screamed out, I am confident, Philippians, that you belong to the Lord. I am sure of this, that he who began a salvific work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. When our giving, when the pattern and rhythm of our giving is truly sacrificial, it serves as fruitful evidence that we don't serve money. We serve God and we belong to him forever. Theologian Frank Thielman provides another angle for understanding Paul's words in verse 17. When Paul says, I don't, seek the, or I, I don't seek the gift, but I do seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Frank Thielman says this, probably not far from Paul's thinking here is the notion of the future day when the Philippians would give an account of themselves before the Christ. On the future day of Christ's return, when you look into the all-knowing eyes of the King of glory, what will you say to him? Here's what I hope to say. I have believed that you are the risen Messiah, Son of God. I have no merit of my own to enter your kingdom. And so this is my plea. Jesus, you shed your blood for my sin. And through faith, I have been clothed in your sinless righteousness. I have believed this good news. And here is the evidence of my life that I have believed it. By your Spirit's enabling power throughout my life, I was able to turn away from many sins and selfish pursuits. I was born again with a renewed mind and a renewed heart. What you did for me on that cross, I did similarly unto others. I grew in humility throughout my life, and I wasn't always perfect, Jesus, but I grew in the humility that you give to count others as more significant than myself. 
I grew in my concern for others more than just myself. I grew in my servitude toward others. And I, Jesus, I tangibly experienced the truth of your promise. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. I don't ask that you, you, you welcome me into your kingdom based on my own merit. I'm trying to simply show the evidence, the fruit in my life that accounts for a gospel belief saved by grace alone. And so I would ask you after that example of a prayer, brothers and sisters, is this kind of verse 17 fruitful evidence increasing in your life? Sacrificial giving requires us to trust, does it not? At the heart of being a miser and accruing everything and keeping it real close is really a distrust in the Lord. Sacrificial giving requires trust in the Lord. Trust that God will supply what is needed in those moments of persecution and poverty and peril. That's essentially what Paul reassures us of in verse 19. Look, here's the good news for us who are prone toward distrust. In Christ dying on the cross, he took the penalty for our distrust upon himself. And in Christ's rising, he gave us power over the sin of distrust. And so by repentant faith in the risen Christ, we have been freed from the penalty of distrust and the power of distrust. And when Christ returns, we'll be freed from the even presence of distrust. And because of our belief in this good news, we can go uncondemned into this day and we have the power now to go and to sin no more, to actually be sacrificial givers, believing, not according to Adam, our first father. What did he, he was going without a piece of fruit that God told him not, that it wasn't for him. Oh, I'm going without, I can't handle that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it for myself. But the second Adam, the Christ, the God man, what did he not go without for our sake? What a sacrificial giver we serve. And what a sacrificial giver we aspire to emulate by the same power that raised him from the grave, living in us to go and to sin no more and to be generous, to give in a costly way, exercising our dependence upon God. The costliness of a gift really reminds us of that. You know, honestly, this isn't in my manuscript and I'm just gonna keep on blabbing at this point in time, but giving is really not, not unlike fasting. You know, when we fast, we go without food so as to revive our dependence upon God and our joy that we get to depend on Him. What, sacrificial giving, really, it, it, does, it does a similar thing. 
We are going without something so as to remind us and revive our minds in this that we are dependent on him for everything. And that is a blessed place to be. And so that is the invitation that we would walk in today. That is the closing invitation of the book of Philippians. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever, Paul writes, amen. Would you join me for a word of prayer and then we'll sing together. Well, Father, I thank you that your word especially goes after the topics of our lives that are often viewed as taboo. (laughs) I thank you, God, that no subject is off limits to your wondrous, unsearchable power. I thank you, God, that every facet of our lives, including money, ought to bow in submission to you, our worthy God. Goodness, what on earth is there that does not belong to you already because you created all things? It's all yours. We are yours. Lord, help us to trust you more. Father, help us to trust you to the level we see Jesus trusting you in your word, the level we see Paul and the Philippians trusting you, God, that we would concern ourselves with one another to the degree that we give, and we give generously, we give sacrificially as a sacrifice of praise as a fragrant aroma, a pleasing offering, because, Lord, in our giving, dependence on you is stirred. We pray and give thanks, asking all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.